You're listening to Confronting Christianity, a podcast of Training the Church. Some of us haven't had to give up very much to follow Christ, and so it can feel really scary to ask someone else to pay a costly price. I imagine 200 years from now, if you know we're all still around or, or Jesus hadn't come back yet, our great grandchildren will look at us and say, "I don't, you know, how could you have left this out because it was it was offensive." Anyone who's acquainted with Scripture knows that our hearts are deceptive, and sometimes it's the things that we want the most that are the things that are trying to put their hands around our necks and choke us to death. Hi, this is Rebecca McLaughlin, and today I am joined by two of my all-time favorite Southern Baptists, Rachel Gilson and Pastor J.D. Greer. We're, we're recording this on a, on a Monday, and J.D.'s, you know, just fresh from the preaching of God's Word yesterday, no doubt. So I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing well. And um, for those of you who don't yet know either Rachel or J.D., first, I'm sorry, you're really missing out. Um, they, they're each that rare blend of, on the one hand, being deeply theologically serious, gospel-hearted, Bible-soaked people, and on the other hand, extremely funny. I was actually just thinking this morning, if I were to set up a Southern Baptist comedy stand-up night, it would feature Rachel Gilson and J.D. Greer. But that's not what we're here to do today, unfortunately, disappointingly. Um, J.D. pastors the, the Summit Church in North Carolina, um, in addition to writing a bunch of books, most recently, I think most recently, Essential Christianity. Is that right, J.D.? You haven't come out with anything since then? Yeah, fabulous. A uh, little book to introduce people to the Christian faith. He holds a PhD in theology from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he recently served as the 62nd president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Rachel Gilson serves on the theological development leadership team at Crew. She is the author of a fabulous book called Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. And she's currently pursuing a PhD in public theology also at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So you guys have much Baptist cred in common thank you again for joining me. We are going to be talking today about a question and an issue that has come up many times for me and I think for each of us um, in, in our conversations, both in private and in public, which is that, that difficult question of what should somebody do if they become a Christian while they are legally married to somebody of their same sex? Now, I, I know, as I say, each of us has ha- had to address that question, not just with people for whom that's a kind of theoretical question that they're maybe interested in the answer. We've each had to address that question while looking in the eyes of someone who is in a same-sex marriage and who is considering the claims of Christ upon their life. And I know that many of our listeners will have an interest in that question from a whole range of different life experiences, whether they're exploring Christianity for themselves, uh, pastoring a church, seeking to love a friend. Perhaps they're like me, someone who's always found themselves primarily attractive romantically to people of their same sex and desiring to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus in that context. So we have many different folks are going to be listening to this conversation. Um, And I wanted to start, Rachel, just by asking you, for those who don't yet know you, to tell us a little bit of your story so we kind of know where you're coming from on this issue just personally. Yeah, I'm happy to share some of my background. So I, I wasn't always a Southern Baptist. In fact, I grew up completely unchurched. And by the time I was in high school, I was a very convinced atheist and frankly thought of religious people as incredibly stupid people. Also in high school, I started uh, dating other young women. So I had romantic and sexual relationships with other young women, and I knew that Christianity in particular was against 
these forms of sexuality. But I already thought Christians were stupid. So in this case, I just thought Christians were also bigots in addition to being stupid. And I went off to New England to go to school. And it was during my freshman year at Yale, actually, that Jesus confronted me uh, with the gospel. I, uh, I love telling the story, but I won't take too long. But down at the end of it, I ended up stealing a copy of Mere Christianity from an acquaintance of mine because I saw it on her shelf and I was too embarrassed to ask her if I could borrow it. And while I was reading that book, I realized that the gospel was true and that I was in big trouble because I lived in all kinds of sin, let alone my sexual sin. But the Spirit also made clear to me that part of the reason Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and myself, and that the only way I was going to be safe was to run towards him and not away from him. So at that point, I'd already done some reading. I knew the Bible said no to same-sex sexual relationships. So I knew that that was going to be a no if I said yes to Jesus. But at the same time, I knew I wasn't going to get a better deal than Jesus offering me forgiveness and new life. And so I was like, okay, I got to take this deal. So I kind of just shut my eyes and prayed and said, okay, I'll become a Christian. I happened to meet some Christians um, who were worshiping with Yale Students for Christ a couple days later, and they walked me down to the local Southern Baptist Church near Yale's campus, and I've been going to Southern Baptist churches ever since, 19 years about, actually over. Fantastic. JD, so I, I'm curious, there are going to be many people listening to this podcast some who would probably want to celebrate a story like Rachel's um, would find it very encouraging. Some who would see it as tragic or harmful um, that she would mm. have, have chosen, you know, following Jesus and actually turning away from sexual and romantic desires that she might otherwise have, have pursued. I'm curious, why would you say, if you would, why do you think it's important for both Christians and, and non-Christians to hear from people like Rachel on these issues in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk, start with the Christians. I think, you know, if you're a believer and you're looking to love and engage people that are like Rachel and like others in this category, you know, we recognize that the gospel incarnates into a real life situation and speaking into the hopes and the fears and the the questions that somebody has. I mean, you can't do that before you listen to them and understand them. Uh, you know, I, I was, um, the way I was taught to be an evangelist is you start by asking questions because you're trying to get people to talk about those, you know, what, what's happening. And otherwise you're misapplying the gospel. It's not that the gospel is any less true. It's just that Jesus was clearly a student of people. So he knew, he knew what to say to the woman at the well that would say, hey, you've had five husbands and for all of your life, you've been searching for a kind of love. And this is why it's not found in adultery. It's found here. He said something different to the rich young ruler. And so, you know, to, to hear somebody like Rachel coming out of this, they're probably um, not going to just respond to my, you know, explanation of five or six passages on why homosexuality is wrong. It's, it's what's the, what, what are the questions behind the question? Um, I, I remember hearing my counseling professor when I was in seminary, um, just walk through the human spirit and then walk through the gospel. Hmm. And I remember thinking there, and I, I never had a, a single thought about becoming a counselor myself one day, but thinking if I could preach like anybody, I would want to preach like a counselor 
somebody who's able to open up the Bible and open up the human spirit and show how mm-hmm. the two um, are made for each other. Mm-hmm. And that's how Jesus preached. He preached like that, and a counselor listens. That's part of um, what it means to represent Christ. So that's why it's important that um, I hear, because even just her saying that just now, I just was thinking about a couple relationships that I have and just and 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 what would resonate with them. Um, for somebody that's not a Christian, I mean, for 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 2,000 years of Christian history, God has taken certain people out of certain situations to say, I want to demonstrate, I want to pour out um, the glories of my grace into somebody so that others can see that mm. that there is a God who can save in this. Um, Paul was most effective with um, people that were you know, from the same Jewish background. That's where he felt most natural. Um, I can readily talk to somebody who is um, you know, sort of a a type A driven person, because I I know the questions that are motivating them and I understand their fears. For somebody that's not a Christian to, to hear what Rachel says and say, look, you know, this is the life I pursued and this is why it did not deliver what it had promised. And here's why Jesus is what I discovered even in the midst of the um the desires that I have that he was was who I was created for. That's a that's a testimony that only somebody who has been redeemed can say, mm-hmm. which is why the Bible so frequently says, Hey, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Mm-hmm. Because God did that for a purpose, and that's to make you a blessing to others. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Yeah, I when I first met Rachel and heard her story, I basically, <laughs> I was at first kind of furious because uh, I'd been at the same church as her for the last year, and I hadn't heard her story. And then I was like, man, not only do I want people to hear her story, but I actually want people to hear from Rachel on a whole mm-hmm. host of things, because I could tell kind of quite how deeply theologically formed she was and how much she loved the Lord and wanted to speak the, the truth on these issues, um, but from a position of of real understanding. And I think that's often where things have kind of got lost along the way as, as we Christians are, are trying to speak this truth. I'm curious, Rachel, actually, so thinking about the the reality that you and I, and I'm sure JD as well, have, have taught with, with many Christians who maybe they've been raised in the church uh, and they're actually wondering now, you know, may, has the church just been misinterpreting the Bible all up, all the way on this, on this issue? You know, there are they were maybe raised with a, a really kind of negative view of people who identify as as gay or lesbian outside the church. And then they've maybe got to know somebody who is in a same-sex marriage. Maybe one of their children has come out as gay. They really love this person uh, in their life. They see, you know, the good things um, about that person. And that's just kind of causing them to rethink. They're thinking, you know, I just can't believe that God would want this person I love to not be happy, like for, for them to not find the, the kind of romantic fulfillment that they would most desire. Um, so maybe we've got the Bible wrong on this one. I'm curious, Rachel, how, how would you respond to somebody who's in that place in their thinking, who's who's listening into us today? Yeah, well, I'm sure like both of you, I've actually had to respond to this question a number of times because it's an experience that a lot of people are having. And some of it is coming from a really good place, especially if you if you grew up going to a Bible-believing church, you know that the gospel is for everybody. So you know that God wants a relationship with everybody. And you also know that God wants the people creating his image, every person, to thrive. Um, if you use a classic crew tool, like I've been trained to use in my experience, right, the number one page in our classic uh, gospel explanation is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Like we can be so soaked in these types of things. We've got some good things going there. But we also have a couple unhelpful things that actually aren't even necessarily coming from the Bible. In fact, in some ways are coming directly from the culture outside the Bible and not the Bible. One of those things 
is a strong idea that you're not a full or real or complete human unless you have a romantic partner, unless you have somebody to be married to specifically in the Christian countercultural. So it, we, we believe that in order to be happy or in order to be mature, you have to be a married person. So that's one thing that's in there. And marriage is a very good thing. God has said marriage is a very good thing. It's in fact a picture of his relationship with his people. But if you need marriage to be a full and real grown-up, then Jesus Christ himself is a little bit in trouble since he lived his earthly life in ministry as a single man, as well as the Apostle Paul. So part of the trouble can be when we meet someone or there's someone in our life who identifies as gay, who we love, and we think, oh, wait a minute, well, they would need to be married in order to be happy. Well, that's not actually true. The Bible doesn't teach we need to be married in order to be happy. Uh, Another thing that can be really difficult is when we've heard a lot of stereotypes about gay people uh, that, you know, maybe if it's our child or if it's our neighbor, we recognize, wait a minute, these things, these stereotypes that I've heard aren't necessarily true. And so it can give us this moment of questioning or doubting all the other things we've heard. Like, well, has everything that I've heard been slightly off? The good news for us is that the Bible is actually God's word and that everything in the scriptures are things that we can trust. And the scriptures are unanimously clear that God says no to same-sex sexual lust and sexual and romantic relationships. And he says yes to faithful Christian marriage between a man and woman and faithful Christian singleness, which is celibate. And so we've got a unified testimony across the scriptures of what God has designed sexuality to be for. And also we have a unified testimony in scriptures that the things we desire can in fact be the exact things that tangle us up in sin. I mean, anyone who's acquainted with scripture knows that our hearts are deceptive. And sometimes it's Mm. the things that we want the most that are the things that are trying to put their hands around our necks and choke us to death. My Mm. own experience of following my desires endlessly is that just as often as they led me to something I experienced as like, well, that was nice. It also led me into a ditch. Like my desires aren't the thing that loves me. My desires are not going to sit with me in the hour of my death. My desires can't promise me eternal life. It's Christ who is my forever friend. It's Christ who's the one who's never going to leave me. My desires don't care about me at all. So I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when we are looking at someone we love and we think, well, they need what they desire in order to be happy, I would say actually scriptures caution us that actually we need to strongly interrogate our desires. And in fact, we need to repent and believe in Christ so that he can reform the desires of our hearts. We can't actually trust ourselves. Like our hearts aren't compasses that point to true north. What what points to true north is what we have in the scriptures. Yeah. I know one of the things that the three of us have in common is that we all desperately long for more people to repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus. Mm. Um, and I'm curious, JD, just sort of building off of, of what Rachel said, I know your latest book, Essential Christianity, is is designed to be like an introduction to the Christian faith for somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus. Mm. Um, and I think you do a, f- a f- fabulous job of that. And and you springboard actually off Paul's letter to the Romans, kind of wondering like if Paul were writing today to people in our culture, what would he say? Now, of course, the letter to the Romans is very much <laughs> for us, even though it wasn't written to us. Right. 
And it has the the advantage of being inspired by the Holy Spirit every single it, it, word. So. There's the distinct <laughs> advantage of being inspired by the Holy Spirit as none of none of our published works that any of us <laughs> have. But I'm curious, JD, so in that book, you decided to address this this issue of, of same-sex sexuality when I think many people would say, do you know, um, if I'm if I'm trying to have a an evangelistic conversation with somebody, if I'm trying to commend the gospel to somebody, explain the basis of, of Christianity. I would maybe kind of soft pedal on that. Or like, maybe I'd leave that out. Maybe that this is such a barrier to people today. That's such a, a, an obstacle in people's minds where they, they think of Christians as, as bigots um, and and unloving and all the things, you know, why would you choose to address this issue in, in a book that's meant to be evangelistic and, and even to sort of broaden out from that, like, if we are people who, who truly want others to, to come to know Jesus, isn't this an issue that we should just sort of maybe, put in the agree to disagree category, like put at the sides um, where, you know, we're, we're not really wanting to engage in that territory. Talk, talk us through. Yeah. Well, if, if you don't mind, Rebecca, I just want to take two sentences and affirm what Rachel said in her answer mm. before this, because I just thought it was so like perfectly, it's a sort of like a, a soft lion, you know, saying basically it doesn't matter what our desires are, no matter what our culture says, um, mm. we've got to conform ourselves to God's word. We should always be suspect on principle when mm. suddenly we have found a new interpretation of the Bible that no Christian has recognized for 2,000 years that somehow conforms <laughs> to what societal norms have become. You know, and you say, you say that, that just seems odd on the surface, and to be able to say, you know, as much as I can, I'm going to be shaped by the scripture and not by my desires or the culture. That's, um, I mean, that's amazing, especially for somebody coming out of that. Um, that's that, that that's the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, putting mm-hmm. that kind of steeliness. Um, so your question to me specifically, Rebecca, about like why include that in an introduction to Christianity um, as you're doing that, and why not kind of punt that issue? Um, I had some very well-meaning friends whose ministries I trust say that very thing to me. Like, just leave this out of this book. It's just going to be anything but a distraction. And I, I do want to say that there are certainly biblical, there's biblical warrant for having certain conversations in, 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 in certain order. You know, like when I have a the privilege of having a gay or lesbian friend that I'm talking to, I don't, you know, sit down with them over coffee and slide the Nashville statement on biblical sexuality across the table and, and say, if you will initial all these places, we can begin our conversation. Um, I want to know them first as people. And I want to say that, you know, the issue, the center of Christianity is the Lordship of Christ and his substitutionary work on your behalf. Um, one of the applications of that is going to be your sexuality. But if we've got to talk about this before we get to that, well, that just makes sense. I mean, even Jesus did that. There are many, many difficult things I have for you now, but you're not ready for them. So th- there is certainly a place in certain conversations to stage the order. But there's a, a couple of reasons um, why I knew that I couldn't do that that book without having that in there. Um, <laughs> it, well, the easiest one is Paul has it in Romans, and it just felt like, you know, it's like, People are going to be like, come on, man, you left that out. So um, I felt like, you know, if Holy Spirit included it, so should I. But practically speaking, um, it used to be that in the 90s, if anybody remembers back in that time period, it really was kind of a don't ask, don't tell time. Like, hey, this is a weird topic. I won't talk about it if you won't talk about it. 
Um, with this new generation, the Gen Z and, and whatever comes after that, um, they, they don't come into the church anymore thinking, let's don't ask, don't tell. They come in with an assumption about what I believe and what I, how I, I you know, how I, I hold the things that I believe. And I know that I've got to get ahead of that and say, hey, you've probably heard that Christians say this and are like this, but that's not, that's not exactly true. We do believe that this is wrong, but but that doesn't mean a, a wholesale rejection of the person or we're treating them categorically like some some weird special group. We recognize at the end of the day, there's one kind of person, you know, sinners, and it doesn't matter what kind of sinner you are, it's, it's what kind of savior Jesus is. So it's just a practical reason. I don't think Christians can afford to deal with it. Um, the late Tim Keller uh, used to, I, I think he's the one that taught me that. He just said, you, you, you got to deal with that coming in the door because they bring in mm-hmm. all kinds of assumptions. Um, the other reason I don't think you can leave it out is because, I mean, really part of what it means to represent Christ in a generation is to preach against sin. Mm-hmm. And and that means identifying some of the biggest cultural idols um, that there are and saying, here's what you're looking for, for identity, for security, and for happiness. And until we deal with that false God, we're never going to be able to point you to the true God. And so, yes, we would look back on, on people in Charleston, South Carolina in 1861 who were just, you know, conveniently leaving a condemnation of slavery out of their message as, I'm not sure what you were doing, but that you were not being faithful to the Scripture. Hmm. I imagine 200 years from now, if, you know, we're all still around or, or Jesus hadn't come back yet, our great-grandchildren will look at us and say, I don't you know, how could you have left this out because it was it was offensive? So I do think there is, you know, some wisdom to get into it in the right terms, but I also think that in order for us to be faithful, we got to be clear on this in our generation. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think as well, I mean, the more the more I've examined the scriptures, actually Rachel's really helped me with her insights on this as well. The more I think that actually Christian sexual ethics is about the gospel. Right. Like it's it's ultimately if what we're saying is Christian marriage points to Jesus's love for his church, then that's, that's the gospel picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes say with, uh, with non-Christian friends who are sort of curious about this, is like Christian sexual ethics is actually weirder than you think. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not just that we think sex only belongs in marriage between a man and a woman in a sort of lifelong covenant, but we actually think this is all about a metaphor. This is all pointing mm-hmm. us to a much greater love that people, especially people with, with stories like Rachel's, can kind of help us to see because they're saying, actually, no, I I said no to something that looked really good to me because I believed in a better love and I still believe Mm. in a better love. Just sort of taking this conversation a step further. And and again, this is a conversation that I think each of us have had in different contexts, but I'm going to direct it to Rachel. What if somebody said to you, okay, I understand the Bible says no to same-sex sexual relationships, but what about if somebody has, has actually got married to somebody of their same sex. Maybe they're even raising children with that person. Um, you know, we know the Bible says that God hates divorce. So isn't that a situation where it's better to stay married? Um, even though, you know, it wasn't right to get married in the first place, you, people might say, well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that if a Christian is married to a non-believer, they, should, they shouldn't end that marriage. So, so doesn't that principle apply here? I'd love just for you to, to talk through that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been asked this question a number of times, as I know you are. And actually, I think the before we can even talk credibly about divorce, we do actually have to understand what marriage even is, like you were just hinting at, Rebecca. We don't know what we're talking about with divorce if we don't know what we're talking about with marriage. When Jesus rebuked the people who were questioning him in Matthew 19, who were asking him particulars about divorce, he didn't actually side with either of them. He's like, 
Don't you recall in the beginning, God created them male and female and a man would leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and that they should be one flesh. Like you can't, you can't separate what God's joined together. So the question of divorce always relates back to, well, what is marriage in the first place? And we consistently see in scripture that marriage is a male-female lifelong covenant of faithfulness. And specifically in Ephesians 5, we see that that is designed to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. It's not just Ephesians 5, but Ephesians 5 is one of the clearest places that we do see it. Mm. And part of the reason we know that same-sex marriage falls short of marriage, well, there's all kinds of reasons, specifically the passages that say no to it. But even when you hold it up to the metaphor, even in Ephesians 5, like we, we need Christ doing his particular work and the church benefiting from his work. There's two parties here, two non-interchangeable parties, uh, God and his people brought together by Christ. And if we've got two husbands, we've got two Christs in the picture, which that, that, that sort of suggests like a Christ saving Christ. It scrambles the metaphor entirely. If we've got two women in the picture, we've got the church saving the church, the church washing and cherishing the church. That's not a gospel picture either. Um, we we absolutely need the husband and the wife because they are these roles that are set in what marriage is. So by definition, a same-sex marriage is not a marriage in God's eyes, even though it's a legal contract that does exist in our society right now. And so that means some principles about divorce that we might normally bring in when we're talking about marriage can feel confusing when we bring them to a same-sex marriage. Because legally, we're using the language of marriage but it's not actually marriage in God's eyes. So I I was recently reflecting on this because I was thinking about basically one of the first times I ever answered this question in public, which was at a big student ministry five and a half years ago. And I had just given this long seminar explaining why the Bible says no to same-sex marriage, same-sex sexual relationships. And this young man, a college student in the audience, uh, asked a question in front of like, couple thousand of his peers saying he had just become a Christian recently. And like many college age converts, um, he really wanted to share the gospel with his parents. His parents were his two moms. And so his question to me was like, well, I want to share the gospel with my moms, but if either of them come to Christ, are they going to have to get divorced? Now, I know when he's asking me this question, he's not asking me, I could hear he wasn't asking me in an antagonistic way. He was like legitimately just confused about what this would mean for his family of origin. And I, I think for so many people who ask it, it's not this esoteric out there thing. It is a thing that impacts them really deeply. Maybe they're not even in the marriage, but they're just close to the marriage for some other reason. So, for example, that 1 Corinthians 7 principle, well, it it just doesn't apply because it's not a marriage to begin with. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about there's some sort of grace. I mean, this actually happened to my mother-in-law. She became a Christian after she was married. Her husband, my father-in-law, has never become a Christian, but she stayed with him because there's part of the principle of being that quiet witness to the gospel over time. They've been married uh, over 40 years, and we keep praying for his full repentance. But in the case of a same-sex marriage— it's not actually a real marriage. And so the, in order to follow Christ completely, to follow him into obedience, um, you have to end that relationship. You have to exit that marriage. Similarly, mm. and I've, I've said this before as I've answered this question in public, 
many Christians are familiar with the dictum that God hates divorce, and that's true. But even though God does hate divorce, even in legitimate marriages, there are certain times when actually divorce is applicable. Jesus talks about it for the exception of pornea, or we even see in Ezra 10, God had said to the Israelite people, you had been booted out of the land for not obeying Torah. Now, as you come back into land, do not marry the women of the land. And then they just went in their unfaithfulness. They married women of the land. And so part of their repentance was actually to end those marriages. And those were legitimate, like actual male-female marriages. And they still, out of faithfulness, had to end them. So even more so when we're coming to a legal situation that's not actually marriage in God's eyes, how much more so does the understanding that God hates divorce not actually apply. And so I think that is what Mm -hmm. a place where Christians can stumble is they know God hates divorce. And so they don't know what to do here, but actually what Mm -hmm. obedience is in this case to follow in righteousness is to separate from each other. Now, of course there might be children involved in this scenario. There often are. So of course there's going to be all kinds of pastoral implications of, How do we as a church family come alongside someone making this very costly move for the sake of Christ? We're told to bear one another's burdens. Um, I'm hoping that as we are good and faithful witnesses to LGBT people in our lives, we're going to have to figure out some of the best practices for these answers because we're going to see God redeem more and more people out of the LGBT community into the family of God. So we're going to have to figure out what that looks like sometimes. And I think there's plenty of times where it's going to be messy, sometimes where it's going to be confusing, but the, the scripture is clear on the sexual ethic front and it's clear on the relational front. You end, you end that marriage. But then there's, you know, there's a lot of practical questions that come alongside, okay, well, how do we make sure everyone mm-hmm. is loved and honored and cared for as the ramifications of that decision right. play out? Judy, I know you as a, a pastor have, have had to, shepherd people in precisely that situation and I'd love for you to share what wisdom you've learned from that what would you see as best practices as as a church on you know how to help people maybe in that specific context you know God calls us to live out our Christianity not in the safety of an ivory tower Mm. where we can just write doctrinal pronouncements but in the messiness of people's lives and the messiness of people's lives don't change or corrupt the doctrine at all it just means that you know knowing how to apply it faithfully. It just requires wisdom. And um, one of the things that we actually had this very situation you're talking about. And, um, you know, so a married uh, lesbian couple sitting in my office, both having repented, you know, come to faith in Christ, trying to figure out what to do. Because, you know, every Reformed theologian knows that marriage is, you know, a civil contract. It's something we honor in the church. It's an idea by God, but that's something he's given to the civil law. So now we're dealing with an actual civil thing under the laws of the land that in God's eyes doesn't really exist. And so, you know, trying to unscramble that egg because there's kids involved and that child, even though they've grown up in a very, you know, what we would recognize as a a bad, you know, a, a sinful situation, they 
um, you know, they didn't choose that. That's all they've ever known. They've got, you know, and so they're, they're trying to figure this out. Then you've got, you know, um, money questions. And then there's all kinds of wisdom questions they were asking me, like if we dissolve our marriage and sleep in separate bedrooms, we've, we're just the best of friends. There's nothing wrong with two friends, you know, that are living together. Is that a, is that okay? You know, is it okay, but not wise? And just, there was all this stuff that we had to work through. Um, it reminded me of when I, I served as a missionary overseas for um, a few years and, there was some stories from the mission field about, it wasn't the area that I was in, but um, missionaries, when they would be preaching the gospel in like a polygamous society, and you have the, um, and you've probably heard some version of this, but you've got the, the chief who comes to Christ who has 10 wives and, you know, discovers after he gets saved with these 10 wives that, you know, that the, the New Testament pattern is one man, one woman. So he's like, well, what am I, you know, do I do? Do I, do I divorce nine of them? Do I, is it the first one that I keep or my favorite one or it, how does that work? And then, and then once you, you know, do that in those societies, those women, because they are considered, you know, um, use goods now, they just become, they have no choice to go into prostitution. So what's the Christian missionary supposed to do in that situation? How do you uphold biblical faithfulness on one hand and wise application on the other? And, you know, all I can say without getting into the specifics, which is probably, you know, would be beyond the scope of your question, is there's two opposite dangers that you can fall into. One is where you just try to create an exception and you, you allow people to be unfaithful. Mm-hmm. You know, where you say, hey, you know what, your sin's too messy and you don't have to worry about obedience to God here. That, that's obviously, that, that would be unfaithful. There is a, you know, th- they cannot remain in a married, married state. They're, they're, even with all the messiness of it, there has to be um, a home situation that honors and glorifies God. I would say the other side that you can go wrong in is just treating it in a, um, as if there's not real people involved, where you just mm-hmm. say, well, you know, God says it doesn't exist, so, you know, next, you know, go, go take care of that. I think there's some ways that we're applying the faithfulness, you know, biblical faithfulness in ways that, you know, to quote Rachel a second ago, honor the humanity of the people involved and are, 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 are getting us to where we are. I'm not, you know, counseling that we're going to take years to do this, um, but, you know, what's a, a reasonable time frame to be able to get the, the house in order to make sure the, the, the separation of finances, that the kids are in a, a healthy and safe place. And I think there's some of those questions that, that it, when you're dealing with actual people and not just doctrines you're writing down in a book, you, mm-hmm. it's not just the truth, it's the wise application of it that we have to be, be mm-hmm. cognizant of. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Rachel, I'm just going to ask you a last question here because I know you've you've kind of sat on the other side of the table of these conversations, albeit not having been in a same-sex marriage, but but having been in a same-sex romantic relationship and having been confronted by a dear friend um, on that. And I'm cu- I'm conscious that there may, there may be some listening to our conversation now who are in that place and um, feeling the offense of what we've said um, and and the the heaviness of it. Um, and the the reality that that ultimately we're saying anyone who comes to Christ is going to need to put everything on the table. But I'd love to hear from you just as someone, as I say, who's kind of been on the other side of the table in these conversations. What was most helpful in how your friends approached you on that and, and what would have been unhelpful? Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, God's grace, he saved me when I was 18. If he'd chosen to save me 18 years after that, I could easily have been the person who was in the same-sex marriage. I mean, that was the trajectory I was on. I do remember there's a very particular time, very early in my faith, where I got all caught up because of these huge feelings I had for this other girl. 
and she had the same feelings for me. And so like uh, numerous dumb college students I've also ministered to, I was trying to figure out this secret sinful second life thing, which is miserable the whole time. And you feel like crud the whole time. It was just a silly, you know, barely year old Christian trying to figure things out. And my um, a dear friend of mine, Sylvia, who'd been walking with the Lord much longer and who loved me. I can't even remember exactly how she found out, but I remember her sitting with me on her bed in our college dorm room bed and looking at me with tears in her eyes, with very um, gentle but firm tones telling me, you have to end this. And I knew she was right. I, I, I had already known, but sometimes your sin just gets you in such a tumble that you need your brothers and sisters to help you um, help you get out of it. Uh, honestly, in my experience of counseling people who are have been called to Christ in the midst of same-sex marriages, almost always someone tells me they do sort of they know what the scripture says. There's just so much fear. There's um, mm-hmm. a lacking of courage. There's a just not knowing what to do, even in the face of it. What I needed from Sylvia and from my community at that time was the grace and truth of Christ. I needed them to tell me the truth, and I needed them to communicate to me that they loved me and that they were going to be with me. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would be tempted, kind of circling back to the beginning of this, be tempted to say, oh, no, that looks really hard. Actually, maybe maybe that's not what the Bible really says. Maybe you do need to have this thing because, gosh, it seems like that is what you really want. And if my friends had said that to me, it just would have cut my feet right out from underneath me. Like, I wouldn't have been able to stand. What I needed was the truth in a context of someone who loved Jesus and who loved me. And it, it changed the trajectory of my ability to walk with faithfulness. I think we can be afraid sometimes to ask that of other people if we have a story where we haven't had to give up much for Christ. Some of us haven't had to give up very much to follow Christ. Just the particularities of our life story, it hasn't cost us too much. And so it can feel really scary to ask someone else to pay a costly price. But for me, and I know for other disciples I've talked to who have similar testimonies to myself of leaving behind same-sex relationships, the parable that feels most accurate is when Jesus said in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he went and in his joy sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field. Because sometimes it will cost you everything. You will sell everything. But when you've actually heard the gospel, when you've actually seen the beauty of Christ, you sell everything in your joy. It says in his joy, he went and sold everything. And that's been my experience. It's the experience of other people that I've walked with. When, when the gospel actually impacts you, it produces a joy that actually fuels radical obedience. And so I don't want people to be afraid of ministering to their friends because of how much it'll cost them, because the cost is always worth it. Jesus always makes up 
you know, pressed down, shaken over, running over into our laps. He always makes up to us anything we think we're leaving. In reality, we're only ever leaving a prison cell anyway. Those are beautiful last words. Made me want to cry. Gosh, thank you, Rachel. I think any of us who uh, enter these conversations not moved to tears by Jesus's incredible love and by our desire for others to know him, um, to find that, find that joy, uh, to be ready to sell all we have, to find him, to receive him. We're maybe not understanding the full magnitude of this, this situation. And so I'm just really thankful for you uh, sharing that, Rachel, and for your entire ministry um, over many years that has preached that good news that Jesus is better um, than any, any other human relationship we might find. Amen to that. Thank you, Pastor Dr. J.D. Greer, um, for joining <laughs> us. I really appreciate you, brother. And thank you for everyone who's been listening. You can find Confronting Christianity on Instagram and Twitter if you ever go near either of those <laughs> things, uh, which I don't always recommend. Not advisable. Not, <laughs> Not advisable. advisable. <laughs> um, you can leave a review on iTunes and in your review, you can include a question that you want us to explore in a future episode. Um, if Carl Woolley were with us, he would say grace and peace. And I thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having me.